Welcome to the podcast, Low Code Talks with Creatio. I'm your host, Andy Zambito, Chief Sales Officer Americas at Creatio. And today our guest is a Rear Admiral with a Chemical and Biological Engineering PhD from Churchill College, Cambridge, Chris Perry. He will talk about challenges of the Novocene, human-machine interface in an age of acceleration. Hello, uh, I'm Chris Parry, and uh, I'm going to spend about a minutes talking with you uh, about a world that's inhabited by both uh, man, women, uh, and machines. Uh, and it's getting very much more complicated because of all the interfaces that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, so we'll talk about that. After that, I'd like to talk about some of the psychological aspects associated with this interface, and at the end, uh, where the business opportunities uh, lie. Um, but um, let me start by saying, the um, reason I call this the, the age of the Novocene uh, is actually something that uh, James Lovelock, the famous author, has put in his latest book. And I do recommend the book. It's actually quite small. Look at that. Very, very thin. Uh, you can read it uh, in a short afternoon. And what he says is, he says, look, should digital technology be viewed as a new life form, sharing our ecosystem and co-evolving with us? Are humans defining technology? or is technology defining humans? And basically what he's doing is rephrasing what Richard Dawkins once said. He said that a chicken is an egg's way of producing uh, another egg. And he says is a human, a computer's way of making another computer. And as we evolve together, these questions uh, are going to be very pertinent indeed. Uh, Lovelock himself predicts that a benevolent, eco-friendly, electronic, artificial superintelligence will someday become the dominant life form on the planet. And he envisages organisms, and this is us, I think, um, uh, will be made of engineered materials, both organic and inorganic, part flesh uh, and part machine. Well, we're not quite there yet, so we've got to manage the interface uh, between uh, that sort of uh, uh, environment. Um, so what I'll do is just take you through a, a few things. The first thing, let's have a look at what's happening in the world uh, that is gonna actually lead uh, to this future. Well, I think we've seen in the wake of COVID that we're heading for essentially what is a two-block world, uh, one led by the United States and its allies, uh, and the other by uh, China. Uh, and I think it was trending that way anyway. COVID has accelerated uh, and amplified uh, what has been happening uh, before. And essentially what's going to happen is we're going to be in a connected uh, but contested world, uh, one where we're going to have to constantly look at whether we want to uh, cooperate where we can, or indeed compete where we must, everything from strategic uh, through to uh, commercial environments. I think what we are gonna see in the wake of COVID is a lot more onshoring back to countries of origin, a lot of local to local uh, business and a restructuring uh, of uh, supply chains. That means there'll be a pressing need for automation in advanced societies and economies because a lot of us uh, are aging in our societies and of course, a lot of the manual work can be done uh, by very basic artificial intelligence platforms. Uh, we also see now that we're in a technology arms race. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, investment going into Chinese and uh, Asian uh, businesses in relation to this, and, and a lot, of course, in the developed world economy. Um, we're, all, we're still gonna have the problem with uh, cyber security, and what I foresee is we'll have a balkanized internet, an internet that is uh, split into uh, various parts because uh, the main internet environment will become uh, so hostile. 
Now, the other thing that's that's quite interesting is that everything and everyone will be detectable uh, within the next uh, 10 years or so, either because of the signature that we give off, our, our facial features, uh, the electronic uh, footprint that we have, or indeed the sensors that states and companies can bring to bear. Um, one of the things we will see, of course, in this very sharp competition between China and its allies and the United States and its allies is China actually developing its own, own high-end tech industries. And they've got this program called Made in China 2025, where they seek to produce at home uh, the leading uh, top uh, technological uh, uh, advantages for China. Uh, and, and they're not intending to import any of this stuff uh, from the rest of us. Let's see just what that means. If you put China up to the top right where the center of the sun is, you can see where a lot of the countries uh, with their investments currently in technology uh, and finance will get burnt as a result of this Made in China 2025. And we have to prepare uh, for this competition because you can see that tariffs and sanctions and various issues will be applied on both sides of this two block world uh, uh, barrier. There'll be a lot of tectonic friction and you can see the countries that are going to uh, have to absolutely compete uh, within the free world block and also across the divide into the other block as well. In the United States, you can see there, you can see the United Kingdom uh, sitting not too bad, but some countries, Japan, Germany, uh, others very close in, South Korea most exposed uh, of all. Um, as I said, a uh, lot more surveillance going on, and most of that will be projected uh, from space. Um, and the simple fact of life is, this is going to be a very active and again, contested environment up in space. And uh, we're going to have something like 50,000 satellites in low Earth orbit. Uh, Elon Musk, of course, is contributing a lot of those satellites uh, with the chains. And by 2035, you're going to have a very, very busy environment uh, with, uh, and you're, you're going to be able to see um, satellites being used for surveillance, for communications, for timing, and of course, for uh, military activity uh, as well. Um, we've also got uh, the surveillance capitalism from the uh, major platform providers in the West, the, uh, the, uh, the Googles, uh, the Microsofts. You've also got the state-based ones in Russia, uh, China, and other countries. And by 2035, as I said, a lot of us are gonna be uh, universally detectable uh, through either satellites or other forms of sensor that will be out there. And what this means is we're going to be managing an increasingly complex machine interface between ourselves and trying to mediate that to filter stuff out to make sure that we're not overwhelmed with the amount of data. And, of course, making sure that we can exploit the technology uh, that we have at our disposal. The problem is, uh, as we've seen throughout today, uh, technology is accelerating and it's disrupting practically everything we do. Every aspect of our life is being disrupted. What is certain is that we are in an age more than any other that is seeing the arrival of extreme technology, uh, whether uh, it's 3D printing, uh, AI altered uh, imaging, quantum computing coming in uh, very soon and other quantum applications, uh, wearables. Uh, we may even have nuclear fusion by the 2040s, giving us a thousand years of electricity uh, if that comes to fruition and obviously nanotechnology already with us. But all of you, all of us uh, uh, know that we're in a world now of big data, machine learning, uh, and also the approaching internet of things. And that means that it's going to be a world that is gonna be shaped and defined 
by artificial intelligence. Uh, lawyers are not safe, accountants are not safe, even uh, designers uh, and doctors aren't. Uh, and I'm glad to say that journalists aren't either. Um, but and we're getting specialist reports now, which previously would have taken months to uh, f- filter and write, are being done now in less than a week. We're seeing spatial computing able to bring us all sorts of graphics and predictive analytics to make sure that we don't get our strategy uh, and other things wrong at the same time. Even on the medical side, there's a huge number of things that AI is now entering into. And our ability to mediate uh, this technology, uh, I'm afraid at the moment, uh, is very immature. And we've got to look for new ways of providing visualization and implementation to make sure that humans can actually benefit across the scale and up and down the stack in every aspect uh, of this artificial intelligence. And you can see things that 10 years ago, including synthetic biology, self-medication, big data and genomics being applied uh, that weren't even considered conceptually sound. On the education side, we've seen, especially during COVID, the way in which uh, it's transformed the whole education sector. Knowledge transfer now takes place predominantly uh, on the internet. You've seen a lot more home learning and socialization. This has led to continuous learning and distance learning uh, for people who are actually doing uh, normal jobs. And and the new cry now is blended learning, combining both humans and machine-led technology in both socializing and doing knowledge transfer. And unless universities adapt, they're going to die because people won't be prepared to invest uh, the amount of money that we have in the past in these new sort of products uh, that are available. We're also in a world now that is uh, going to be uh, populated by large numbers of robotics and unmanned uh, uh, features. Um, Here are some that are actually out on the ground already, delivering stuff uh, and actually providing assistance, both medical and for search and rescue as well. And all of us know, I think, uh, that it's not just a case of the civilian world adopting these unmanned uh, uh, vehicles, the military are as well. In fact, they're pioneering the use right now in every dimension of warfare, whether it's in the air or, or under the sea. And you can see that tiny one, uh, that tiny little micro flyer uh, that provides you with uh, intelligence in buildings and along streets, uh, absolutely tiny, but it's aerial sticking out behind. Now, some of the limitations of humans in this can be shown when you're using drones uh, in swarming formations. What was used at the South Korean uh, 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 Winter Olympics, these sorts of shapes and sizes, they can be used for uh, tricks like this, but also, of course, they can use be used uh, for warfare. But our ability to be able to do that manually, uh, to have manual reversion, to do it without uh, having a machine between us and them, uh, is getting increasingly difficult. Uh, and uh, e- even to have any in- human involvement in this now is becoming uh, very challenging indeed. So how are we uh, trying to mitigate this? Well, partly... As you know, we're in the first generation of wearables. Um, I'm, I've got wearables at the moment. I've got a, a spectacle on. Uh, and you can see Prince Harry there in happier days. He's wearing uh, a, a uh, monocle, which is giving data right into his right eye. And we've seen variations on Google Glass and other features like that. Um, and they're developing. You can see them commercially now. Uh, we're wearing them on our clothes. We're wearing them uh, on our bodies. Um, and things are getting even more uh, subtle here and sophisticated. You can put them across your skin and almost like tattoos on your arm uh, and on your fingers as well. 
Uh, and where it's all coming together, you can see very sophisticated applications. Now, here's a Chinese uh, police officer uh, who not only has a Google Class type um, spectacles on which to read uh, the data, it's also linked into artificial intelligence, facial recognition uh, that she can use in order to be able to see who people are and classify them, whether they're obviously illegal uh, or not. Now, the next uh, move, of course, is to get us into implantables. Uh, some people today, uh, especially in the military, are already wearing implantables, implantables that can do all sorts of things. They can monitor, uh, that they can uh, basically identify problems associated with the, uh, the body they are inhabiting. They also target cancer cells. They can issue drugs. And this is leading edge now, implantables. Um, if you dare go down this route, Leon Musk has got an offer for you. He'll actually put a, a, an implant into your brain. Now, this is really actually on the Wild West side. All of us think that. I think I wouldn't want to be the guinea pig, but this has to be the way ahead, the way we actually connect. Shades of the Matrix here, uh, shades of all sorts of um, uh, sort of uh, science fiction, but it is it has been conceptually proven, and this must be the way to go because we're heading for digitized uh, organs. Uh, an eye that actually works uh, outside of the body is now being fitted, the various parts of the heart and that very tiny implantable that can actually monitor uh, and regulate organs if you have to. And in terms of digital twinning, you can see the whole body put onto a chip in order to be able to monitor what is going on uh, within any particular body. So humans and machines, Let, let's have some facts of life about this. Uh, OK, we've got to be aware that automation replaces tasks. It doesn't replace work in total. Uh, and as we know, many manual tasks are being replaced at the moment, but less than 5% of jobs consist of activities that are 100% automatable. Uh, and the problem is that traditional human-machine interfaces can't effectively contextualize and allow for contingency uh, and the unexpected. So in future, we're going to have to be able to blend the physical uh, and the digital. Uh, and that's got to be based on a constant cross-exchanging of information between essentially the human that wants the task done uh, and the machine that is actually going to do the task uh, for it within safety, within regulation, uh, and within uh, the dimensions of what the output is. Now, many of us uh, at the moment are familiar with digital assistance. Um, uh, that sort of thing now is probably entry level. But the problem is the, these ways of actually interfacing with machines uh, don't suit humans entirely. They're actually built to uh, facilitate things for uh, humans. And the old idea uh, for, for machines and the old idea that everything's intuitive seems to have faded. Uh, and the more intuitive we can make the interface, uh, the better. Uh, one of the things that's uh, quite impressive I've seen recently uh, is uh, the Atlas University at Colorado, Boulder. Uh, they're now using this Holobot link uh, to a much better interface through these uh, glasses. Um, and they can actually interact with a drone and actually reprogram the drone uh, while that is going uh, on. So it can retask it. So really sophisticated interface for the current period. Um, now, the military, as you'd expect, uh, and uh, some of our emergency services are well up uh, the slope on this one. So uh, the next thing, um, those of you who come from San Francisco will know that um, Safe AI uh, is building an autonomous construction site at the moment, uh, which allows uh, human oversight, 
uh, but machines doing all the work uh, and making sure that it's staying uh, safe. Now, what's uh, going to transform uh, all of this, in my view, uh, is the development of uh, augmented reality. And for those of you who are not familiar with the various terms, I've actually put the definition up. Um, but augmented reality, uh, as well as virtual reality, uh, are going to transform uh, the, this interface. And I think those of you who work in this sector uh, will know how uh, we'll be able to achieve that. But the problem is, again, uh, the, the issue is that the emphasis is on the technology side, not on the human side. And I'll explain why uh, we need to actually have more uh, emphasis on the human side in a minute. Um, now, of course, if you want augmented and uh, uh, virtual reality, you can have mixed reality. Now, what's really interesting with AR and VR is the extent to which we're already using them for mission rehearsal. Uh, combat pilots, quarterbacks even, uh, and a number of other people are starting to use them. Uh, in fact, they've been using them for some time now to visualize how they're going to be either on missions or playing uh, in games. And the advantage of virtual reality is that because users' brains are treating the experience they're having as psychologically real, they're psychologically aroused in a way that is similar to what occurs in real experience. Because when we think, the parts of the brain that are associated with body movements become activated in our brain. And that means that people can learn better by doing rather than watching. Uh, but also those that learn best uh, are simulating the motor actions in their brain that they would do for real. And many quarterbacks now in, um, in, in uh, American football are spending their weeks before games actually involved in virtual reality, where they're actually going through the motions. And if you remember, when you started to learn a bike, uh, to ride a bike, uh, you started thinking about where you were going to put your feet on the pedals. You talk about the handlebars. You worried about the balance. Well, when you go through a VR, you start pushing that sort of thing to the back, and you let the force be with you. And just as on a bike, you don't worry about the peripherals. You just think about what you're doing overall. And some of the quarterbacks that we've interviewed in relation to this say, you know, I don't even think about the detail. I don't even see the detail anymore. I just know what the whole big picture is. Uh, and the reason that these expert level players can so efficiently process all this information that they've amassed through practice, study and gameplay uh, is that they're able to create and call upon extremely refined mental representations, not just what they've done on the practice field, but in terms of virtual reality, where their opposition has actually been put in the same uh, space as them. They get feedback and they're able to repeat it every time till they get it right. Um, just going down the list, you can actually uh, use uh, this for uh, interviews to get that right. In the theatre, you don't have to practice with your other actors there. Uh, you can even actually create situations of empathy. And you can see what we've got uh, at the bottom there. Somebody's been aged uh, digitally, how does it feel? If you're in a virtual reality situation, you can't actually move just as you could as a youngster. Um, and what's really interesting from a business point of view, uh, when people have been asked to walk in other people's shoes in virtual reality, uh, you found that there's been an 18% increase in 20 to 30 year olds in actually putting in place arrangements for their pension. Uh, so it actually has a commercial advantage as well. Um, what's uh, even more interesting is that you can use VR for um, uh, uh, psychological therapy. Uh, and um, the, the really interesting thing here is that, obviously, uh, things like 9-11 or combat, uh, many patients were having trouble reconnecting with their memories, either because they were limited by their imaginative capacity 
or because they were so traumatized they wouldn't actually let themselves uh, think about the memories. Um, so with 9-11, combat veterans, um, you can use v uh, VR in particular to bring them closer to reality, to heighten their emotions by programming real seeming environments and put them in touch with their memories, their real sensory memories. Because our memories are collections of verbal narratives and sensory rich experiences, it's both the talking it out and experiencing the original trauma and coming to terms with it, which actually uh, makes a difference. Now, the other thing about VR is that it actually induces some sort of um, uh, ways of thinking that aren't actually natural. Um, so this is an interface that we really have to work on because psychologically, uh, we're not producing, uh, in some ways we're producing the real world, in other ways we're not. Now, this is a film from 1895 and it's the arrival of a train in Paris and it was filmed uh, and it's one of the first black and white uh, uh, sort of cinema films. And when this train came along the track, half the audience actually uh, put up their hands in horror and dived under the seat because they thought the train was coming out uh, of, the, of the screen at them. Um, and in fact, VR technology uh, has a tendency to do that if you're not careful. Um, so what we're seeing now is um, you find that people who've been in uh, VR or AR situations, their interactions in the physical world uh, change as well. Uh, and it's associated with social inhibitions. And you'll find that people who've been witness to or been asked to take part in experimentation in immoral acts are obsessive about cleaning themselves afterwards. They use wipes and they, they wash their hands and things like that. And that's because VR experiences mimic actual reality and induce similar forms of thought of behavior. But the problem is uh, that it's not actually like real life. We've had some real problems in dealing with driverless cars, for example, and the decisions that pilots would make in an emergency situation. We go through it in VR and we find that as soon as you introduce a human in the real world, it, it isn't like that. So experiences in VR are not yet a good proxy for what happens in uh, real life. But we get some odd behaviors. People avoid sitting on a chair, for example, in a room that they've just seen an avatar sitting on while they've been, been on VR. And people's approaches, uh, particularly in VR, uh, are affected by having an avatar in the room, as if they had a real person in the room. Uh, for example, it affects how people walk, how they talk, uh, where they turn their head, the whole body language changes. And even doing easy tasks in the presence of an avatar is quite difficult. We found in an experiment that doing simple anagrams, not a problem. Put an avatar in the room with you in virtual reality, can't do it so easily. Um, so there's all sorts of inhibitions that are going uh, on. Um, another thing that was quite interesting is that uh, when you had avatars sitting on seats uh, in, in uh, an experiment, when we turned off the VR and people just walked around the room, people consciously wouldn't sit on seats that avatars had been sitting on before. It's quite extraordinary. So there's a number of things that we don't understand that we're going to have to deal with uh, as we come down the line and this becomes uh, more uh, sophisticated. Now, getting back to the difference between reality uh, and virtual uh, reality, uh, we did a couple of experiments. Uh, we did uh, some with some uh, people at the Naval War College in the, in the United States. Uh, and we found that in virtual reality, people were prepared to take more risks than they would in reality. 
when we went to Wall Street, uh, we actually said to people, look, here's a load of money, uh, start trading with that. And here is some virtual money in a virtual space, start trading with that. Well, interestingly, the guys with the real, the guys and women with the uh, real money, they actually made 22% more. So there's something going on here, which we have to, to sort out. Similarly, if we show children violence going on uh, in, in virtual reality, uh, they tend to beat up dolls and they beat up other uh, sort of inanimate objects uh, when they get out into real life again. Um, I hear a lot about the desensitization to violence. Uh, if you see a lot of that in VR and video gaming, that doesn't tend to happen, to tell you the truth. Uh, and we get a situation where certainly you can improve your ability, for example, to fire a gun. Um, uh, Anders Bering Breivik, uh, he's the guy who, who conducted a massacre in Norway in July 2011. He, he played violent games, particularly uh, Call of Duty and uh, Modern Warfare, um, with a pistol-shaped controller. And although we don't think it actually led to him being more violent and doing what he did, what it did do was increase his shooting skills and encouraged him to go for the head uh, as a shot. Um, and so you can see how certain things like the Matrix, Ready Player One, Neuromancer, all these things roll over from VR, but there is not any real concrete evidence to say that they increase uh, the level of violence in people uh, in real life. What you do get, of course, uh, is reality blurring. Some of the people who've come out of VR experiments say, you know, my approach to what happens in real life is slightly different. Uh, everything feels superficial. Uh, and in some cases, they say it's slightly unreal. It's almost as if they're in a dream for a while after they come out of immersive uh, VR. Now, what's interesting with children, uh, children tend to engage in VR with their prefrontal cortex, and that's associated with emotion and behavior regulation. Uh, it's not completely developed in children, of course, uh, and they're notoriously susceptible uh, to reality blurring and false memories when they're exposed to virtual uh, reality. Uh, we did an experiment, for example, where we had kids swimming with whales in, in, in a virtual reality experience, and 38% of them uh, were convincing us that they'd actually been to SeaWorld to see an orca and actually had touched one when, they, in fact, they hadn't. Um, so some interesting things <laughs> going on in that space, as you can imagine. Okay, the other big problem we've got in relation to the man-machine interface at the moment, of course, is the amount of fake and false and polluted uh, data that is being put into a lot of uh, information systems, which are being taken into virtual uh, and augmented reality uh, platforms. Here's a classic one, the shootdown of the Malaysian airliner over Ukraine, and some Russian troll has managed to put a Ukrainian fighter aircraft firing a missile, it looks as if uh, it's going to shoot down the aeroplane. Um, I think we're all aware of uh, fake images. Um, there's some classic examples there. All these are now feeding into a lot of our big data systems. Um, and of course, uh, the whole cyber situation in future is going to get immensely more complicated when we get into uh, artificial uh, intelligence. Uh, and once we apply artificial intelligence to uh, cyber, it becomes totally different in terms of the way we're going to have to deal with it. We get automated hacking, uh, interactive engagement on social media, deep fake and speech synthesis, which means all those pictures and all those speech uh, vectors uh, suddenly become weaponized. You get targeted spear phishing attacks. 
open source and social media web scraping on a huge scale, uh, which exposes both organizations and individuals. Adversarial example induced confusion. So you won't actually see the source of where it's coming from or even the origin or, or, or anything else. The poisoning and planting of data, we've mentioned that. But more importantly, uh, the adaptive cloaking of malware with other plausible and wholly reliable data contacts uh, and messages. So you won't be able to see at first sight uh, whether that's the case. You can see how exposed human beings are uh, to this machine interface at the moment. And of course, adversarial machine learning to evade malware classifiers. Now, my view is that I think what's going to happen is we're going to end up with a partitioned internet, not just because uh, states will say, look, we just can't be safe now uh, in this very ragged uh, and imperfect internet. I think even companies now with big data applications, artificial intelligence, algorithmic uh, processes are going to say, look, uh, we're probably going to have our own ecosystem where we feel safe and we'll have uh, very, very ragged uh, interfaces with this uh, internet. One of the other threats to us, of course, now is the ability electronically to jam, to manipulate and to spoof. And I think this is underestimated, to tell you the truth. There's a lot of commercial uh, threat out there. If you put uh, everything in the back of a Land Rover or, or a Jeep, uh, you can take, take it to the middle of a city and you can take out most of the Wi-Fi uh, and uh, cordless systems that are operating around the place. So be warned. This is something that I think that is uh, coming on the way. And I think the final point that I think we need to make in terms of the way uh, ecosystem runs is who controls access and data. Uh, and we've seen recently attempts to close down certain books uh, and documents, public conversations on social media. Just think of having some of uh, those machines inside your body dispensing drugs on command. What happens if uh, the person who controls the access and the data actually says, well, actually, this is a section of the population that doesn't deserve or, or, or is not entitled to uh, treatment. We all know we get monitored by uh, the uh, data platforms, by the state. Um, and now, in an age where uh, everything can be digitally re remastered and constructed, where does uh, the truth lie? And this creates huge amount of problems psychologically uh, along the, the edge between uh, machine uh, and humans. Okay, um, next uh, thing, I'm going to talk about some of the uh, psychological uh, aspects uh, of the way uh, we, we do business. Uh, everybody says people can't take technology at the rate it's, uh, it's going at the moment. I agree with them, it's going too fast. But once we believed that if trains went more than 30 miles an hour, the brain would collapse. Uh, the issue is, though, we are drowning ourselves uh, in trivia and excess in amongst all the information uh, that we need. And I'm going to introduce you to um, what I call the medial forebrain pleasure circuit. It's a bit of a mouthful, I'm afraid. But all I want to say to you is um, the Internet and all the technologies that we are developing are fantastic ways of producing a, a drug essentially called dopamine and oxytocin. Uh, uh, and they basically travel into the medial forebrain pleasure circuit and they light up with success and approval. They just love it. And social media and the Internet are ideal, ideally suited to stimulating this effect. Now, they've got a big brother as well called serotonin. Uh, the human mind is always a battle between the top down and bottom down process. The top down process tell us what we expect the world to look like. The bottom-up processes say, I'm getting more information here. 
uh, and this is what the world is actually like. Uh, and within your brain, uh, your senses report back roughly what the brain expects. Everything's fine. Uh, but when the two don't match, your consciousness is alerted to it. Serotonin is involved and it mediates this surprise or distraction. The problem is it keeps you on a high along with uh, dopamine and oxytocin while you're resolving that. Now, interestingly, when this process goes wrong, it causes problems. One theory of autism is that it's caused when your brain is hypersensitive to unexpected changes. Your attention is constantly drawn to tiny, inconsequential details, and the world seems a, a buzzing confusion. And misunderstandings can be caused by your brain not paying enough attention to the bottom-up details and making stuff up out of your own expectations. It's also possible that depression is caused by an inability to update beliefs about the world in the presence of new information. If you don't have enough serotonin in your brain, you can't change your understanding of things easily enough, and that's how you get sometimes into uh, depression. Okay, so we're in a bit of a, uh, an unequal struggle, really. Um, we're trying to keep up with technology, more information. We've got less time uh, to process it. Um, and we've got hyper-connected lives that have benefits and disadvantage. But the problem is that technology is weakening our energy reserves. Uh, and those of you who work for a long time in a high-stress and high-impact environment will know that. Uh, and if, if you look at a Pew survey for, from the uh, uh, United States, uh, you'll know that, um, it, that people can capitalize on new technologies. Uh, they can find their way through large amounts of information as, as quickly as possible. But unfortunately, they're not seeing what it's doing to their brain uh, and also to the rest of their bodies. Um, and I meet a lot of colleagues who uh, I classify as having eye disorder. And basically, they're trending towards OCD, narcissism, addiction, or even ADHD, um, which is really manifested through their overuse of technology. Uh, and if you look around your colleagues, that's an obsessive need normally to uh, check for text messages, a desperate desire to constantly update your Facebook status, or, or even a near addiction to iPhone games. Uh, they're all manifestations of eye disorder. Uh, but the problem is basically an endless stream of prompts and notifications uh, is actually messing up your brain and also your work and gen more general life. Um, and the problem is you get a reduced mental bandwidth that leads to a loss of cognitive control and tunneling. And what you do is you trade long-term benefit for short-term relief. You want to feel better. You want more dopamine in your brain. Uh, and we, we found in an experiment that some of our Chinese students, for example, who do have internet addiction disorder, uh, showed that actually they have reduced gray matter in their brains uh, and white matter in key areas of the brain associated with cognitive control and also goal-directed behavior. They can't actually produce results uh, because they are so distracted by this addiction. Uh, what it leads to, I'm afraid to say, is bad decision-making and even poor uh, risk assessments. Uh, and the problem we've got uh, here is we tend to miss the obvious. And in missing the obvious, of course, uh, people say, well, what's wrong with that person? Uh, you don't know because uh, the person himself doesn't know either. The real problem is we've got an issue um, with attention. Um, everything that we have in technology nowadays is designed to grab your attention. Everything is designed to alert you to something happening. It's strengthening our ability to scan information rapidly and efficiently, and we're getting further 
into fast technologies, the faster those technologies get, the less able we are to cope. Uh, the demands on the brain have increased uh, and the, there is real ment mental effort required to sustain focus. That depletes the glucose in your brain uh, that's needed to feed neural energy. And that wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and too many distractions. Now, if I tell you that 2.9 billion people uh, are on social media at the moment, that introduces a lot of novelty and surprise uh, and also a lot of interruptions uh, and distractions. And I'm afraid to say that digital distractions create near constant cognitive overload in your brains. Um, evidence suggests that reliance uh, on our technologies, uh, particularly our mobile technologies, is shortening our attention span. It's down to eight seconds now, which I have to tell you is um, shorter than that of a fish. Now, when we've all got computers in our pockets, there's lots of things to do. We never get bored. But unfortunately, we are missing stuff amongst the noise. And I will say to you, if you're on a train, how can you read a sign of a station uh, as you go past it at speed? You can't is the answer. And we're missing some of the big stuff uh, with all the trivia around us. To give you an example, a known unread message in your inbox reduces your IQ by 10 points. Just knowing you've got it, the fact you haven't read it. Uh, Twitter, if uh, you're uh, actually on Twitter, uh, it produces 56% more neural activity in areas associated with memory formation. So you've got less than half of your attention on what's important when you're reading uh, a Twitter message uh, or a thread. The basic problem is when you're overloaded with technology, your white matter bulks up. That means uh, your attention, control, and executive function okay, takes over, okay, at the expense of the gray matter, which, as I've said, is the decision uh, and uh, uh, decision making and thinking uh, function. Uh, I have students uh, who, who, um, who I work with at the moment, they can barely concentrate for more than three minutes at a stretch uh, if they've got uh, their notifications and their lights going off on their mobile phones. Um, and even those that don't actually have their phones turned on, they're worried about what's going on uh, and they're worried about their status uh, when uh, that phone is off. Uh, and memories are compromised when we let constant interruptions distract us. Uh, the brain's memory and organization centers can be damaged when flooded with stress hormones and it's a common reaction to interruptions and multitasking. And you'll find that leads in turn to uh, problems with capacity, recall and complex problem solving. Now, areas of the brain that relate to attention, control, and executive function bulk up this white matter that I told you about. They're the extra nerve cells that are built for speed at the expense of the neuron-rich gray matter that's used for problem solving and co uh, cognition. Uh, uh, and the result is that many high school students in Europe and in the United States can't actually synthesize or assess information, express complex thoughts, or analyze arguments because of that. What does that do? It reduces productivity and increases mistakes by 50% uh, over time. And the problem is it's a vicious cycle because it leads you, if you are weak and your energy levels low, for more interruption and distraction. So the dopamine circuit uh, can actually fire up again uh, and the serotonin as well. Reading books on a device. Uh, I have to tell you that if you read books on a device, uh, then you won't retain the information that you have there. It's all frontal lobe stuff. It'll stay there for as long as you think you need that, but it won't go into your memory circuits. We've done scans of people 
uh, where we have them reading a book and we have them reading uh, from digital media. Uh, and I can tell you in every case, uh, the memory circuit part of the brain lights up when people are reading a book or a document. They do not light up uh, when they're reading uh, from uh, an iPhone, uh, an iPad or any other digital device. Just think, when you want to check a document, you actually print it off, don't you? There's a reason for that. Oh, you're saying, all you're saying is kids are good at this. They're digital natives. I have to tell you, we borrowed some kids with the parents' permission, and it's the same with the kids. Our brain is not plastic enough. So if you want your kids to learn, I'm afraid they've got to get back to books again. Uh, it's a far more efficient way of actually learning. I've mentioned already, uh, within the modern world, because we can access information uh, very easily, we're not storing it quite so well. Uh, either. What does that lead to? Inability to load up the processor that is your brain. And so complex problem solving becomes very difficult because you don't practice it. Now, one of the issues that I'm uh, concerned about at the moment is teen suicides uh, in the United Kingdom. It's a study I'm doing. Uh, why have we got more teen suicides at the moment? I'm afraid to say one of the lines that we're looking at is throughout their teenage years, kids uh, are associated with the internet and with their mobile phones. They're constantly showing off their best pictures, uh, their best experiences, uh, best photos, all that sort of thing. So the dopamine levels are very high during a time when teenage brains uh, are actually just getting to grips with the world. They are malleable. Uh, and this dopamine high continues through uh, to the end of, say, uh, high school. Uh, when they go to university or they get into work, people say, oh, that's interesting. That's you on the Internet. That's you in reality. They don't seem to match. And we think this is causing confusion and it's causing, uh, uh, you know, obvious, uh, obviously uh, conflict in people, some people's minds. So interesting. Um, if you use the Internet and you use technology excessively, this is what you end up with. I won't go through all these things. You won't be subject to them. But just have a look at some of the things that uh, we're looking at here. Uh, there's some quite interesting fragility issues associated with a lot of these. And more or less, you can see them. Uh, and to add to that, you've got the physical stuff associated with impaired vision, hearing, headaches, we all get it, neck and back strain, uh, and tendency, I'm afraid, to obesity if you spend too much time hanging around technology in the way we're doing it at the moment. Okay, so we've got to get work, home and leisure right. Uh, we're not doing it at the moment, I have to tell you. Uh, longer working hours, they're counterproductive, uh, and we've got to be goal orientated in many ways that you've got to have priorities and values uh, taking uh, place over uh, duties and locations. And we're finding that now with COVID. Productivity and outcomes over hours worked. Think of the balance between the two. And work is where you go to, not something uh, that you do. And you really should schedule work around your life, not the other way around. And get out into the real world. Do, do what 50,000 years of cavemen has done and cave woman has done, don't do what 2000 years of civilization and 100 years of digital technology has done. And I, I'm gonna mainline on sleep here, I have to tell you. Sleep is stress and strain therapy. Uh, it shuts down the elements of your, uh, are a means of defragging your brain. Just as the computer gets defragged, your dreams are there to defrag you. It clears the macromolecular junk out by dilating the lymphatic vessels, if you wanna know and it rewires your brain to prevent overcrowding. Um, if you deprive people of sleep, if you give them four hours a night after a week, uh, their hunger hormone, the ghrelin, uh, it's called ghrelin, sores, you eat more, you drink stuff, 
uh, the carbohydrate and sugar consumption rockets at that stage so that the glucose can't be released almost to diabetic levels. So watch out if you lose sleep. So stay off the electronics uh, before bed um, and don't uh, give in to this transcranial magnetic stimulation that you get from devices that are always on. And I have to tell you that round the clock exposure to artificial light, even low level light from TV screens and also uh, technology screens can throw off our circadian rhythms and you have negative effects in terms of depression, mood disorders, sleep loss, and I'm afraid increased uh, risk, uh, risk of cancer. Uh, and we also get a situation where if you lose sleep and you get stressed, okay, you resort to coffee, coke, high calorie food, drugs in some cases, yet again, that keeps you wired up and it's a self-fulfilling vicious cycle uh, again. Uh, and I'm afraid to say also uh, that if you don't clear out the plaque that exists in your brain, just like you have plaque on teeth, we think there's a connection now to our Alzheimer's. So you really do have to get your sleep. There's no question about that. If you don't, uh, all these things uh, are going to come to you. And I'm beginning to think now that if you don't think about this as employers, you're going to end up in a situation where we're going to get litigation uh, in future. OK, let's have a, a think about the effect of technology uh, on children, because we all almost all have them nowadays, uh, one way or the other. What we have to remember is that children's brains are very malleable and still developing. So digital exposure is very important to them because their immediate environment determines the kind of attention that they develop. I'll give an example. Uh, reading is fully immersive for children. Television isn't. It distracts them uh, and it leaves little to the imagination. If you go to the internet and gaming, of course, consistent attention uh, is impossible. Um, having said that, there's no evidence that gaming uh, affects a child's uh, psychological uh, development, other than the fact, of course, uh, it, it is totally uh, superficial. It is not immersive. And I always say the difference between reading, for example, uh, and doing things uh, on the internet or, or, or in gaming is the difference between scuba diving and jet skiing. And it has the same effect on young brains. Scuba diving, you're fully immersed, you look at the detail, you're having to concentrate on what you're doing. Jet skiing, you're just going across the top uh, of things uh, all the time. Um, again, if we have children too uh, aligned to technology, they don't learn so well. We've done experiments with children in class that show that if you remove the technology for them, not only are they more stimulated, entertained, their brains actually absorb more knowledge and they can do better tasks when they're at it. Okay, homeworking. Um, everybody says this has been brilliant during COVID. I have to say uh, I'm picking up quite a lot of problems associated with homeworking. Okay, the social dislocation, something that uh, you only miss when you're not getting uh, the social interaction. Body language. Body language at the moment is becoming totally forced. And you'll know the number of times you use the camera off and mute function in order to uh, make that happen. Now, digital immersion at home is now causing all of the problems that I spoke to you psychologically earlier on. You just can't get away from it. Uh, and one of the tragedies uh, that I'm finding is what I call digital neglect. Uh, because people are so um, immersed in their digital uh, media, you're getting pressured children. And we're finding that if you're affluent, in other words, middle class, uh, and you're in this digital immersion mode, uh, that the, uh, the kids, of these children are two to three times more likely to do depression, alcohol, or drugs in their, their teens. Uh, and they spend a lot of their time online in gaming or fantasy worlds. So 
be warned in this regard. It does affect your kids. Um, we're finding drops in creativity because the dynamic interaction uh, is not occurring and the emotional quotient of people uh, is uh, being reduced uh, all the time. And a lot of people now in, in some of the firms that I'm working with, particularly in the city of London, we're finding they're burning out very quickly because of this digital overload and are actually saying we wish we could commute because actually that gives us a break between work and home. They're missing commuting for heaven's sake. And again, I get back to the point, you know, where does company responsibility come in here? Is the company responsible for the seat the person sits in when they work for you? Their mental state, how do you monitor that? There are all sorts of things. So if you see uh, your co-workers with any of these, uh, it's a sure sign that technology uh, is really uh, getting to them. Uh, and we really need to know, uh, I think, uh, some of the causes, some of the symptoms uh, that lead to uh, these issues. If you see any of these, uh, then you need to be uh, pressing the alarm bell for some of your people, particularly when they're working from remote. Finally, I just wanted to tell you, I think, where we need to develop the um, human interface. Uh, people learn in different ways. And they, as you can see, there are various ways that they can learn. They can learn visually uh, by listening. They can read and write. Uh, but the real jump ahead now is, as I hinted earlier, in the virtual reality space where you can do you can learn by doing. Uh, and most people learn most quickly and most deeply with that latter way of learning. All the others contribute and everybody does a, a bit of everything. But that is the way ahead to be able to actually replicate learning experience for people. Remember the quarterback, remember the combat pilot uh, and the opportunities, I think, uh, in the space are these. Um, we have to improve uh, the way we dovetail in with people's cognition, the way they visualize information, the way they visualize uh, problems, uh, which leads to insight uh, and knowledge. At the moment, uh, we're not leading directly into people's psychological portals to enable them to do that. Again, how do we build uh, better visualizations? Uh, because data is a scary thing. It's also a thing that's very difficult to moderate. It's very difficult to mediate with it and filter out what we really need. And again, I get back to my point that systems are built very much for the machine end of things right now. Um, they're not built for the humans themselves. So better machine uh, human uh, collaboration in order to take in the psychological and practical reasons uh, for, the, uh, for the way in which we use machines and can exploit them uh, more uh, quickly uh, and more effectively. And I think essentially we're in a 2D world when we're looking at the interfaces for data with virtual reality, with immersion, with all the sorts of wearables and inserts that we've got. We can look for novel interfaces now to be able to see how we can do that. And finally, um, whatever I've told you, okay, it's only uh, 50 minutes. Whatever I've told you, please expect the unexpected. It's both a risk uh, and it's uh, an opportunity. Uh, and thank you so much uh, for listening in. Thank you very much. Chris, thank you very much for such great insights about the challenges that human machine interface might bring. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. To get information about our products and services, visit our website, creatio.com. For more insights, check our digital event page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Talk soon.